Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? Oh man, this gives like the this this is the vocal quality I be trying to accomplish with my little cheap mics. And it's like just it doesn't sound like the real podcast. <laughs> this is NPR stuff, right? This is the real you dig, right? Welcome to Working Title. Uh, so James, we just really, really appreciate you taking the time to to do this, man. This means a lot to to Joseph and I. Um the way we the way we start off every every podcast is just simply asking you the question. You know, you find yourself in a on an airplane, awkward conversation or whatever. It's inevitable someone's going to say, "So, what do you do?" Right. And um, how do you how how would you respond to that? I respond by saying I'm an educator because um, I feel like that's about the best term to encapsulate who I am. Um, you could say I'm a teacher for sure because I feel like teaching is who you are more even than it's what you do. But just to alleviate any confusion, since I'm no longer in the classroom, I say that I'm an educator. Um, my classroom has expanded, you know, so I feel like my purpose is to teach folks beyond traditional students, you know, adolescents. Um, but ultimately my, uh, my motivation is about education, it's about raising consciousness and informing people about things they used to be in the dark about and shining light. How long were you in the classroom for? I was in the classroom for a total of six years, six years, um, categorically, right? Mm-hmm. So like that last year, I mean, I was on staff, but I was gone the entire year. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, kind of doing the teacher of the year thing. And so that took me out of the classroom a lot. So um, you could say I was in, I would say I was in the classroom five years, but I was a teacher categorically for six. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'll definitely talk more about you know, the whole teacher of the year thing. I'm, I, that's actually what I think you should respond to that question with. When someone asks you, what do you do? You just show them the award. And, <laughs> no, no. You know. I never, you know, I won't say never, but I rarely, if ever, even bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not. we'll bring it up for yeah. you. <laughs> Appreciate that. So take us back a little bit further then as far as like, what was your path to becoming an, an educator then? Was that something that had been a passion of yours uh, early on? I mean, childhood even, or when did that spark within you? No. So, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. in a way you, you know, you can look back and you can see clearly I was on a path toward this the entire time, but it was not apparent to me. I never um, really fancied the idea of, of being a teacher. You know, that's not what I went to school for. I went to undergraduate. I got my undergraduate degree in mass communication. Right. Yeah. So I was a print with the print journalism focus. That was my intention. Um, and then what ended up happening is, um, you know, I came out with this degree and even then, though, my motivation was to like be an investigative journalist. So in a way, it was still angled toward educating the public on, yeah. you know, one thing or another. Um, but the Internet was just decimating papers. This is like right when the Internet was starting to like introduce online news and your mom pop papers were just being destroyed. Yeah. And so I came out needing work. And so I ended up uh, working in the nonprofit sector for a while. Initially, I was doing like, um, you know, medicine, things of that nature. Uh, holistic medicine, um, and then um, working at a community health center for a little, little while. And then I ended up pivoting and working with youth um, in the after-school space. Well, not in the after-school space first, but uh, in the schools, truancy, 
um, inter- intervention specialists. And so kids who were chronically absent and truant, I worked with them, tracking them down, building relationships, investigating why yeah. they weren't coming to school. And that led um, me to really just fall in love with kids and, and understand like the richness and the depth of the stories that they carry that adults rarely, if ever, you know, take time to, to learn about. And then I got into the after school space and just, man, fell in love with those doggone kids, man. You know, because you're spending, um, you know, hours upon hours in the in the afternoon and in the evening with, with the kids, you know, from four to nine is when I would work with them. Once they got out of school, they'd come to my center. And just, man, you talk about like building the village atmosphere and like community, like, man, I felt like I was stealing that money. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. But it got to the point where I was like, man, this is, this almost isn't even enough. I need more. Yeah. I want more interface with them. I want to be able to answer their queries and be able to instruct them on things and teach them about information. Then it was like, dude, clearly that's because you're a teacher mm-hmm. at heart, yeah. you know? And so that just solidified for me what had already been kind of burning, which was, you know, the fact that I was a teacher, you know, I discovered that I was when I didn't choose to be a teacher so much. So I went back, got my bachelor's of arts in teaching in uh, 2009 and the rest has been pretty much history. But that's, in, in the end, it was always there. Yeah. You know, it's just a matter of me discovering it. Yeah. Was that in Charlotte that you were doing all that? No. So that was back home in Rockford, Illinois. Mm. Um, and so y'all from the Midwest too, right? I, I, I didn't grow up there, but I graduated high school in Ohio. Got you, got you. Got yeah, you. I'm up north and from north of Pittsburgh. Got you, yeah. got you. So, you know, transplants, at least, or, you know, somewhere. For sure, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, back so back in the Midwest, uh, you know, um, and as much as we talk about there being a lack of opportunity um, here in Charlotte, you know, that's where I really decided to teach because I just saw, you know, youth in my hometown um, who didn't have any semblance of, you know, a prospect for, for the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I felt like the best way in that environment that I could make a contribution was by, was by teaching and, and, and really teaching, but by proxy mentoring them. You know, and so that's where it began for me is, is back home, back in Rockford. I did that uh, and I taught for one year in Rockford as well. So I got certified, taught for a year there. And then um, that's when I packed up and left in 2010 and came to Charlotte, yeah. sight, un- sight unseen, no job <laughs> or nothing. And then they're working um, a couple miles down the road at Garinger. Yeah. That's nuts. What, yeah. did, what did your parents do for a living? So um, they uh, sort of traversed different um different careers, but throughout the majority of my life, um, my mother was an administrative assistant for um, the the doctor who ran the emergency center at a hospital, rather. And uh, my dad um, was a maintenance mechanic, right? Okay. So he worked in, in factories and just like maintain the machines, right? Whenever they break down, that's kind of what he did. Um, but, you know, neither of them, both of them, went to college neither of them completed at the time mm-hmm. that we were growing up um and my dad was actually a small business owner in the early part of my life right so from about you know zero to four uh he sold uh and and serviced typewriters and early computers man oh yeah like, that's crazy yeah, so you know the first apples you know the the, the commodore 64 <laughs> and you know yeah the floppy disk joints I, so he you know he'd have those you know and um so but he ended up getting, you know, driven out of business by, um, you know, some other circumstances that are another uh, topic for another podcast. But, 
you know, so they were blue collar folks, uh, essentially though, you know, um, dad worked with his hands, could fix anything, anything could build or fix anything. Right? Can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, 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 you know, even though I'm decent, like I'm not, you know, I know in my heart of hearts, I'll never measure up, not even come close to my dad. Uh, and my mother, you know, um, born, you know, in re- born in Arkansas, migrated north during the Great Migration, you know, still has that, you know, that southern, you know, country orientation. But those are the those are the roots that I come from. And my dad's from Buffalo. I should I should mention that as well. Uh, would Would you describe were you guys a pretty close relationship, close family? Do you have siblings as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I got an older sister and I got a younger sister. Yeah. And uh, we're all we're all tight. The whole family's tight. Yeah. And my, my mother's watching my um, my sick children right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and, you know, and she keeps my schedule the whole night. Right. So we're we're tight in the family my dad you know is that's my guy yeah uh, i had an amazing i have an amazing father um you know everybody feels that way about their father hopefully but you know he's the best um you know and has left some has left some extremely large shoes for me to feel as a husband and as a father um and so you know so long as he feels good about the job that i'm doing i feel like i'm i'm all right yeah you know? so when you first started doing some of these working after school um with, with a lot of these youths, what, what were some of the, you know, some of the main hurdles that you saw that they were facing? And, and you know, in a way, it's no, it's no different than the same things you can see now. So just abject poverty, um, sort of, uh, and when I say poverty, I'm talking like, a, you know, like just generally lack. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just necessarily speaking to finances, even though that's a huge part of it. Sure. I'm also talking about like poverty of um, exposure to different um, possibilities. Yeah. Um, you know, and not, in a way, my hometown, like Rockford, it does that to you. You know, I don't know if you guys seen the um, film Mining the Gap on Hulu. Mm-mm. It was up for an Oscar, but it's about my hometown. It's about these, these skateboard kids. Oh, I have heard of that. I yeah, haven't seen yeah. it. That's the most Rockford thing you're ever going to see. Oh, right yeah. There. Yeah. I mean, because it's just, you know, life comes at you fast and you're not prepared for it. And that's kind of what most of the kids were dealing with, right? Not a city with a whole lot of, you know, things to do, prospects for the future. You can see that. Um, a lot of times, too, man, it's just, you know, I hate to say it, man, because it sounds like I'm repeating a trope, but like a lack of parental engagement. Sure. For various circumstances, right? Very And various reasons. But, you know, any given night, I'm taking five, six kids home. Just off, off rip. You already know. And it's not necessarily because... The parents ain't available. Sometimes, like you pull up to the house and you know the car is pulled up in the in the driveway. They post it up in the living room with the TV on. You're like, come on now, yeah. like don't just assume I'm gonna take the kid home. But you know, those were the things. Just like a lack of guidance, man. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, and listen, man, I'm of the persuasion that parents generally do the best that they can. Um, and you know, sometimes they have their own issues. You know, um, they all and, and the kids they have their own assets. But usually what they were dealing with was some, you know, just a lack of um, people, a lack of like advocates to be able to show them like how to um, navigate the world as it is and understand their position in the world. That's that's what I would say. To jump back a little bit, what what did your parents think that you were going to do? Man, (laughs) I'm laughing (laughs) because I'm certain they were just happy if I would do something. (laughs) 
<laughs> for real. <laughs> like, you know, I don't think they got as far as which, which, they call me Jimmy. What's Jimmy gonna do? <laughs> They're just like, man, I hope Jimmy does something. something. <laughs> yeah. Cause, you know, I was, I, I, I was a struggling student, man. And I didn't, you know, my older and young, younger siblings were exceptional, um, exceptional students. They did a great job. You know, my older sister uh, excelled, you know, consummate, like, first kid you know what I mean <laughs> and then my younger sister was like in gifted classes all the way from like elementary school all the way through high school so they were you know they were on the pathway to success me I was just kind of like meandering around in the middle only boy struggling to find my identity and sometimes just like a lethargic attitude apathetic attitude towards academics so I think they were just like man I hope you know Jimmy does something but in a way when I started teaching they were like you've always had that yeah. Because I tell you this, my first job, I've been working since I was 13, man. Yeah. Kid you not. I still got my first pay stub. Um, and I, 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 somebody at, at my school put me on to the fact that the park district over the summer, if you got a work permit, a special uh -huh. permit that you, know, that you could work at 13, would hire you. So I was like, nuh-uh. So I tried it out, and I got a permit, and then I applied, and I got a job. And I was working with youth, check this out, over the summer teaching them arts. Oh, no, arts and crafts. So we yeah. would just as a band that was we'd show up to uh, you know, in Rockford over the summer, kids would just you could just drop your kid off at a park, you sign them up or whatever, and they'd stay at that park all day, you know, over the summertime. It's basically like daycare, right? So we show up at these parks every day and we teach them arts. And I used to come back like, Man, I'm pretty good at this. The kids like me, you know what I mean? I'm not super artistic, but I know how to do this. And so when I started teaching, they were like, You always you always you always have like kids. Mm -hmm. You know, you've always been good with kids and so uh, I think they thought, you know, it, it, it fit me. It was befitting of me to be teaching. But I'm not sure. You'd have to ask them what, you, <laughs> what they thought I'd be doing. Because I don't have the slightest idea. At some point, I think they were just like, come on, Lord. Uh, just. I've I, I seen what you've done for others. <laughs> do it again. Do, do, it, do, do it for Jimmy. <laughs> was, was faith or church part of your childhood? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. big time. Um, so my mother, you know, uh, raised in an incredibly religious household, mm -hmm. uh, raised in the AME, um, African Methodist Episcopal tradition. Um, and in and, and the, and the deep South, the AME is just deep, yeah. you know? And so the presence in Illinois is strong. My grandparents raised in the church. Early on, she was actually a piano player uh, at, at our church, you know? So she sang the choir, played piano, et cetera. So we were raised going to church. Yeah. My dad, ironically, uh, was raised Catholic, air quotes, you mm -hmm. know, you know, he attended, uh, you know, Catholic church, but was relatively agnostic throughout most of his life. I didn't realize this until I got older, uh, but it was, <laughs> I wouldn't advise this, right? But it was my mother who ended up sort of changing his life, right? So PSA, don't be out there missionary dating, <laughs> right? No missionary dating, but, uh, you know, through some very supernatural experiences, he converted. And he, he'll tell you in a heartbeat, he's like, he didn't come to Christ in the church, right? Mm. It, was, it was some personal experiences yeah. that, you know, led him to become a believer. So we were raised with a very healthy understanding of belief. But we also, because my dad was agnostic, our orientation was always that of still thinking like a person who's unchurched, mm -hmm. that yeah. disposition. I still carry that today. Like, I'm never just going to be so indoctrinated that I, don't, that I can't think about how things look and sound outside of uh you know folks who you know are you know are adherent 
to you know religious tradition i continue to look and think you know like somebody who doesn't necessarily hold a uh, subscribe to a faith tradition but i think that comes from my father yeah which is a gift kind of right i think so yeah, yeah. i think so because i've seen the other side i'm like dang you know i don't lord don't ever let me get like that where i can't think beyond something that i believe or i'm so entrenched um in a particular cultural ideology that uh you know that i'm just bound by that mm-hmm. you know i'm always gonna be looking like no nah, well that i mean that makes sense you know right um that comes from my pops though i think but yes i mean yeah we was raised in that church man we had you know for, we, we had to go you yeah. know <laughs> <laughs> not an option <laughs> nah at least until we became teenagers yeah sure. was um so with that faith tradition then like uh were words like purpose and calling and was that kind of part of you know you trying to figure life out yeah but you know my my parents did a very good job particularly my mother of raising us with um you know even if i couldn't have quoted the jeremiah scripture in principle i knew right that that i had purpose and that that purpose predated my formation Mm -hmm. right uh even when throughout my struggle, she was like, listen, you're special, mm-hmm. right? You got it. And you know, that's what millennials get knocked for <laughs> being told that by their parents all the time. Right. But it's different when your mother's telling you that from a faith perspective, like, nah, God got something for you to do here. Yeah. Right. And I know you're struggling right now. It doesn't look like it, but you know, trust and believe like there's something for you to, I'm, I'm holding out hope. I know there's something for you to do. So I always went about, even if I was struggling and kind of flailing, kind of knowing that you know, the God had his hand over my life that I was like, all right, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not just gonna end up by the wayside. And then there's the thing that I had a personal relationship to, right? There's some things, even as a youngster where, um, you know, just encounters, you know, where it was clear that like, this was beyond chance that, uh, you know, you know, something, um, something otherworldly was, was governing my life. Um, and when you come into that now, it's, like, it's just about trying to find your way into the will. You know what I'm saying? And um, now I think I'm at a pretty decent point. But even when I, <laughs> even even today, man, I'm still trying to step into my full calling. Yeah. Um, and trying to figure out what it is that God has for me to do. But that understanding was always there as a child. I, I think that, you I mean, call it a millennial trope or whatever you want to call it. But I think the whole idea, the way that she articulated it and that you just said, that you you yourself are special. There's not some sort of outside thing that you're called to step into. But I, I mean, my contention, I think, I mean, it's pretty obvious that whatever you, whatever direction you went, whichever industry or whatever path you took, you were going to engage it in a special way, in the way that only you could. And so I think that knowing that, like, look, there's something special on you. It's not about you fitting into a puzzle piece. Like, you are going to go into whatever you do and do something, you know, in a profound way. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And even you saying it's like, you know what, who couldn't get on board with that? Right. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's not feel good stuff, but I mean, it's so it's, it's the, it's the divinity, the inherent divinity that you carry within you just going to allow you to prosper wherever you're planted. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so, um, and they would like, you know, say like, look, see, look, look, you, you, you just different. They'll point things out when you do things be like, see there, see, you, you just different, right? Like, you know, in a mm-hmm. good way. And that builds up that confidence. Like, yeah, I am different. There's something for me. It doesn't make me better. Right. But, but I'm, I'm supposed to do something special here. 
Right. And I mean, whether you're an atheist or, or whatever, it's just that foundation is a gift that, that parents or, you know, mentors or whatever can, can give to kids for sure. You know, listen, man, I go to therapy, right? <laughs> and so we put that out here. I think everybody should go to therapy, right? Uh-huh. But what you end up finding is that there's so much overlap between, you know, what's considered clinical, you know, um, therapy. And I don't want to infer that one should substitute the other, right? I'm, mm-hmm. You know, but what I'm saying is that the notion of accepting yourself, right, flaws and all, but then still being willing to love and embrace in, in you know, your, your entire identity with the understanding that, like, yo, you, you got something to offer the world. Like, that's a secular notion, but when it's grounded in something deeper, like I think faith, man, just leads people to be able to walk about without uh, as much fear. Like, cause I don't trust myself. Like, you know, I don't think I'm that great. You know what I'm saying? But like, I trust God. You know what I mean? It's like, as long as he's in charge, like I can live with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I, yeah. I didn't know the investigative journalist side of things that you were kind of going down that path or thought that. Do, do you think that that kind of inclination, that kind of like questioning, I'm going to get to the bottom of something. Do you feel like when you were teaching that you were almost like some sort of it was a subversive thing. You were infiltrating education as sort of an investigative journalist to try to get to the bottom of it. And then that's why you have taken the path that you have now. Absolutely, man. You laid that out beautifully. <laughs> you did. No, I mean, seriously, you, you just about put the fin- put your finger on it. My orientation, I was always, and you use the term subversive and I, I encourage teachers to be subversive. Mm-hmm. I was always on assignment. Right. Mm-hmm. I was always on a mission. I was never just there like right. just to be a teacher. I was clearly from Jump Street there as an activist. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, operating out of a civic mindset. Totally. Um, and then the notion of critical thinking is is a life skill that everybody should should have. Yeah, absolutely. So how do I cultivate that in the classroom? But then how do I use this education as a tool, not just to convey content, but to but to disrupt the system, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I would tell them all the time, I was like, man, you know, because um, they would, you know, ask questions like, man, well, why are you here, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, or they would see, maybe I reveal a talent in class, right? They'd be like, oh, Mr. Ford, you're good at that, man. You should be doing that. Why, why, why are you here? You're different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, no, you don't understand. Like, I choose to be here, man. Like, my contribution is you. Like, I'm getting over on the world by by sitting here talking with y'all, like y'all are how I'm getting over. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Cause you guys are going to go out here and you guys are going to turn this whole thing yep. on its head. And like, you can see the level of excitement, right? The similar thing, right? That, nah, you guys are special. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just here to contribute. So that when you do that thing, I'll be like, ah, oh, I know that kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got to teach that kid. So yes, subversive, absolutely activist orientation, 100%. It's never just been about content for me. It's always been about social change. Yeah. Speak a little bit more to, to, to the subversive nature of, of your teaching style. Yeah. Like what, you know, and I'm not asking you to, you know, bash the current education system or whatever, but like what, what, what was the thing that you were, that was in need of being subverted and, and then, you know, how did you approach that? Yeah. So my teaching style, didactic. So everything, whether you know it or not, has an inherent lesson behind it, mm. right? It's thought-provoking. Like, I'm, I'm trying to provoke thought at every turn. Yeah. I'm encouraging you to question and 
not questioning for question's sake, but learning how to think critically. Learn learning, how to learn. Learning how to learn. That's right. So getting meta. Yeah. Right? How do I learn? Right. Or what is what is even truth? How do I de- deduce what truth is? Right. Like so these are higher transcendent things that cross discipline, cross any uh, sector you're going to go into, but they're going to aid you. And finally, it's like, how do I become everything is angled toward how do I become um, certainly a more productive citizen and a better person? But how do I navigate this world with a level of understanding? I remember going through school and learning things. And then as I would monitor current events, like when I got in college, thinking to myself, man, I didn't learn this. And having to remediate. Yeah. And I remember, like, I taught social studies. So I was like, look, I want y'all to be interpreters of current events. I don't want you to have to remediate. remediate. I want you to be able to look at stuff and be like, man, Mr. Ford taught us that. I know exactly what's about to happen next. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or I've seen this before. That was my thing. Like, how can I get you ahead of the curve where you're not having to go back and pick pick up the pieces, but instead you're able to uh, predict, you know, with a level of certainty, you know, everything that's happening right now. Like, everything taking place currently, dude, like, psh, I was already talking about this stuff in class. I promise you I was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? I was like, man, this is all coming out of pot. Y'all watch. This is what's going to happen. Da, da, da. Change the nature of this neighborhood. The whole now we talked about all that stuff. Yeah. So. Do you, uh, so, so you you were in the classroom for how many years again? I'm five, five years. years. Yeah. And then you have been out of the classroom now how many years? Man, so this is my fourth year, if you can believe that or not. Talk about uh, some of the relationships that you might still have with some of those those students. I mean, do you know, like, these ones that you had tried to instill with this new mindset? I mean, what, what some of them have done with it? Absolutely. I mean, somebody, uh, one of my students texted me this morning. Uh, she wanted to um, observe one of the other teachers because she wants to go into teaching. She's yeah. like, can you give me Miss so-and-so's uh, information? I want to go observe her classes. So I was like, I put her in contact with one of my colleagues who still works there. Um, I have students who, um, man, put me on to a book that changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. He's a former student. He put me on to uh, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Yeah. yeah. You know, he put, he put it in my hands. It's after he graduated. He's like, hey, Mr. Ford, you ever heard this book before? <laughs> I was like, nah, man. And it's a wonder I'd never encountered it before, but that was my former student. I always give credit uh, to for that. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I run into some kids at funerals. Sure. You know, um, where I see him and we touch base. Um, and then some, of course, through social media. But um, when I see him out and about, um, usually it's like, you know, at the mall or something, something random. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll say something to me like, man, you used to really, man, our stuff you used to talk about, man, you used to really, uh, you used to really take it there. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to, or, we, or, you know, we used to really get deep in your class. That's the stuff that makes me feel good. So I like to think I made some sort of contribution along the way. But the ones that I maintain, I still mentor some of the, some of the kids, you know, trying to help them find jobs or, you know, meander through community college or whatever the case may be. So those are always going to be my kids. Yeah. How did the teacher of the year thing come about? I mean, I, I know you have to like be nominated for it, but was that, did that come as a surprise to you? Yes and no. Um, the part that wasn't a surprise was like, that I want teacher of the year at the school? That's where it starts at. That your colleagues, your colleagues vote you teacher of the year. Mm. So they'll, um, they'll, you know, in that particular year and say, this is a teacher who I respect who's done a really good job, which is like probably the highest honor out of the whole thing, right? To have your colleagues tell you they respect your work. Because they know you. Exactly. They really know you. So I was cool with that. Um, wasn't surprised by that, but I was like, all right, this is cool. Thanks, y'all. Yeah. The various levels after that. So then I won from my region of 
CMS. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, can I get off now? I really was like, this has been <laughs> fine. Can I go back to doing what I was doing? And they were like, no. Then you, then I won CMS Teacher of the Year. And I broke down crying, man. Yeah. Because I was like, Lord, not you know, and I had already been. I was going through some, you know, I was just coming out of some real, like, real life situations, man. I had been humbled pretty badly <laughs> uh, <laughs> by God, you know. So. Uh, getting my life straight, you know what I mean? And being able to see the fruits of that on the other side, I was like, God saying, see, like, this is, this is what happens, man. You know what I mean? When you, when you do what you're supposed to be doing, you know? And, um, then after that, it was like, uh, went in the Southwest region of North Carolina and then when North Carolina teacher, I was like, this is way bigger than anything I ever anticipated. Right. I don't even know this existed. I didn't realize that there were so many layers to it. That's insane. Bro, it's like the March Madness. Like I try to tell people, (laughs) you come in as a 16 seed, you know what I mean? And then you work your way all the way up to the big dance, you know, and that's kind of how it was. That's crazy. Yeah. And then, and then obviously they sent you up to DC for that and you got to meet Obama, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Which was a big deal for me. In the Oval Office, right? In the Oval Office. Still got the picture on my cell phone. I was going to be my president. (laughs) <laughs> um, for real yeah of course not free of, not free of flaw you know you know I, of course I'm, I'm a critic of his as well uh but you know he represents a whole lot of uh what i admire um in the world and you know and he'll always be a symbol of, of hope for i think a lot of people particularly uh black men like myself but yeah that was a big deal uh to be able to go up there life-changing event um also because for me it was full full circle you know there was a time he was my senator Right, oh, right, in Illinois. Yeah. yeah, so I remember running into him in um, in Hyde Park in Chicago one time when his kids were real, real little. Oh, there goes uh, Senator Barack Obama, right? Never going to be able to experience that again, just running up on, on Obama. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, but to see him again um, after everything he had accomplished was really, really cool. So I, 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 I always remember that. Were you guys able to talk at all? Man, because of the fact that you got 55 uh, teachers, including states and all the territories, teachers of the year that are all coming through to make the way to meet him, you get a couple of seconds. Right. Yeah. So I cracked a joke with him, you know what I mean? Because I wore, I wore a tan suit. <laughs> I was like, man, where's your tan suit at, man? I was trying to be, you know, matching with you. He said, oh, man, well, this is light gray. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you know. Because uh, he took heat for that. He did, man. So I was Imagine <laughs> taking heat for that. <laughs> Seems like so long ago, doesn't it, Joseph? Back, back when a trip to the White House meant something. <laughs> the back last when, time. Back when tan suits dominated headlines <laughs> so, as a scandal. So stupid. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was about as much as I got to say. But I did get to dap him up. And I was like, listen, man. <laughs> just want to let you know. Listen, I, I met you some years ago, you know. And, you know, you inspired me then. You inspired me now. I was like, you know, thank you. So that was about it. Some of my favorite videos on the internet are Obama shaking white dudes' hands. <laughs> and then he'll get up to a black guy. <laughs> you got to know the code, Charlie, man. Charlie, right. Charlie. Member, <laughs> membership has its benefits, man. You know? Did, uh, did that open up what you're doing now, the Teacher of the Year thing? Did that kind of prominence take you to, you know, where you're at now? Absolutely. Yeah. Unequivocally. Explain a little bit about the path out of the classroom and then into kind of what you're doing now. Cause you, it's been a yeah. couple of twists, right? Since oh, then. Oh man. Um, yeah, the change, the teacher of the year for North Carolina changed my life without question. Um, so much so that you continue to feel unworthy of it. Mm. Um, it gives you a platform sort of artificially where when you speak, people listen, 
um, you're looked to as an expert um, and your word is respected. Uh, you know, you travel the whole state for an entire year. You see things that you get a perspective of the state that nobody else really gets to see. So you develop a knowledge base. So when my year was complete, I just knowing the issues that I was raising on, on the trail, talking about things that I continue to talk about race, <laughs> right. yeah. inequality. Right. And the crazy part though, you guys is how it was received. Right. Like I would go into places. I'd be the only spot of color in there. Some rural white County and I slipped something in there, you know, about racism and, it was like, yeah. I'm like, dang. I'm like, man, again, I might got a knack for this. Like, mm, yeah. So I found like I could address these issues in disarming ways. Yeah. So then I got to feeling like, all right, I want to go back and see my kids. But man, if I don't feel like uh, that I might have a, a particular space here to, to fill. And so I prayed on it, man. I struggled. And my mother was just like, you're selfish because you want to go back to those kids because you love the interaction. I was like, you're absolutely right. She's like, but they don't need you there anymore as much as they need you out there in places they can't go. Wow. And I was like, man. So I left and I pivoted to working in education policy because I wanted to be influencing people who made decisions that impacted my kids who often weren't, weren't thought about. Yeah. And um, so I spent two years working for a think tank addressing issues of racial equity there. Just teacher leadership and other tangential things. But that kind of gave me the, the cachet that I now have where, I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm looked to as an authority on issues of race in, in the intersections with education and how those things play out on a systemic level. I can speak with a level of fluency on those. Um, but that's not possible without Teacher of the Year, period. Yeah. I know, you know, you could probably talk for six hours on this, but, but like, talk about what what does need to be changed what did your voice bring to that think tank like what were you advocating for and yeah um racial equity yeah really deals with the notion it could it could also be phrased as racial justice but it, it speaks more to um justice in the uh, access to opportunity because currently it's racialized in the other way right it's racial injustice right there's racial inequity we often talk in education about the achievement gap, and that's a problematic description because it assumes that people have the same starting point and that the issue is the, a lack in achievement, and that's not what it is. It's that we live in a society that, that is inherently racist to the extent that you know, every institution has the markings and the bearings of white supremacy. White supremacy not just or exclusive to a belief in the superiority of white folks, but in a system that produces outcomes that pretty much stack up in such a way, even without malicious intent. Yeah. So in education, when you continue to see kids of color, every metric, whether it be suspension, whether it be uh, you know, benchmark achievement on tests, whether it be access to uh, rigorous courses, whether it be uh, identification as special ed, same order, right? Yeah. <laughs> White on top black and brown on bottom, that that's, that that's systemic. And we have to start addressing situations and circumstances as such and responding to that, not as some outgrowth of a natural selection, but as an inherent flaw in our system. Um, and I think this is a different approach 
from what from the ways of, of, of the past and talking about those issues and kind of have oh look black kids are, aren't achieving at the same level as white kids or look latinx kids aren't doing as hot as the white kids it's like no no we're allowing this to persist because this is an outgrowth of a larger issue that if we address it forces us to confront other systems that we don't want to be honest about and that's kind of the orientation that i take yeah have and have you seen uh, have you seen change no, I mean, I mean, let me not say no uh, definitively. I've seen some change, yeah. but not in the ways that are quantifiable, right? I've seen change in attitudes. And listen, I, be I believe the ground has to be prepared. Sure. Right? You don't want to be throwing seeds on stony ground. You know what I mean? You got to cultivate that and you got to break it up so that it can really take root. Um, so I feel like that's kind of part of my job is, again, to soften things up to the point we can have honest discourse. And now people are more willing to not just acknowledge it, but to start to state it as a goal. Mm -hmm. right? We need to do something. We need to, we need to enact a level of racial equity. When I was teaching you that, it's simply race nor equity was really getting talked about, right? So listen, I don't know if you want to cause, you know, make a, ca a causal claim to say that that was because of me, but uh, I'd like to think that I had a small piece to do with that. We haven't seen the changes in the outcomes, though, and that's the ultimate thing that I want to see. Well, and something that took 300 years to, to build is not going to be dismantled overnight. Say that one more time. <laughs> yeah. for, for those who might not have caught it. Chipping away at it, right? Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, like, you know, not resting on our laurels, mm -hmm. uh, but also understanding, like, the gigantic nature of the problem we're dealing with. Do you, when, when you run into to these issues, do you... Um, do you run into what would you would label as like malicious intent maybe like where there's like this intentional suppression of of a certain you know a certain group of kids or do you see it as more of like or do you run into more of they're afraid that letting anybody else into their club in a sense would lessen their ability to succeed it, i don't know if, if that question makes sense but which is in its own way malicious. Of course, 100% yes. Um, yeah, simple answer is I think it's a mix. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it's either or. If I had to, you know, say proportionately, I don't think the majority of people are malicious, right? And you might not gather that from my Twitter feed, right? But <laughs> I really don't. I think, but what I don't like to do is say that oh, nobody's malicious and make these folks invisible. There, there's a percentage of folks, probably about 20%, who, um, man, like, they're just on that one end of the bell curve. They're committed to whatever keeps in place the racial hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. And they won't say it that way. And if you raise the issue, they'll take personal offense. I'm not a racist. What are you saying about me? Well, listen, man, I'm not even going to talk about you. Let's just talk about your advocacy for a system that we know produces these results. We can make whatever, draw whatever inferences we want about you, but that's almost tangential. It's unimportant. What's important is that this system is, is, is producing racialized outcomes that are inherently inequitable. And, you know, you are a fierce defender of that. So, you know, <laughs> And whether, whether you're actively malicious or not, you're propped up by systems that arguably were set up to produce the results that we're getting right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And so there are some folks that I think are on the bubble where it's like they really have a different ideology that is inspiring their advocacy of one um, position or another, right? That's not inherently racial, right? But you're right, okay? 
you see, and this is my job now, it's like making it clear what the system produces and causing the internal conflict within you Okay, so that you say, okay, you, cannot, you can no longer deny that this is what it looks like and that these positions are ultimately uh, generating this stratification, right? So as passionate as you might feel about this one thing, right, whatever, whether it is like neighborhood schools, right? Mm-hmm. As passionate as you might feel about that thing, you see what it's doing. So then you got to make a choice, man, determination where it's like, man, do I sacrifice my pet, you know, nostalgic or project that is near and dear to my heart? It's really of minimal consequence. Or do I adjust it because I know it's inherently harmful to other folks? When you don't make that adjustment, man, I have every right in the world to, 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 make a, to draw a conclusion about you. I have every right in the world, man, to do that. You know, what of I mean? course. <laughs> and that might upset people, but my thing is, I don't let people off the hook by saying, "Oh, nobody's doing this on purpose." Some folks are, right? right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's not. Some folks are going with the flow. Don't know necessarily what it's doing. They just haven't attended to uh, all the underlying stuff. Some of y'all are masking what your intentions are. You're just being dishonest. And you know, I kind of feel like my calling in this space is to create that tension, man. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, a lot of the people that are will be listening to this are people of faith. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've encountered this or if this is just my little, uh, my own little world, but have you seen people set up a, a dichotomy that I think is a false dichotomy between biblical justice and social, social justice and try to, try to make those two things different? Have you, have you seen this? All of the time, dude. And, you know, you know, and like somebody who told me who wasn't a believer, there is like, man, you know, Man, if your religion don't change my world, man, you can keep it. Of course. Right. That's, that's a true statement. You know what I'm saying? And I feel the same way. Again, that orientation of kind of an unbeliever, which is, man, you know, you know Howard Thurman calls it an otherworldly religion, mm-hmm. right? This religion that exists uh, in the by and by, right? But it has no direct consequence in the actual world, right, that we're living in, which is contrary to not just the gospel of Christ, but all of the, the whole Judeo tradition that precedes what ends up evolving to Christianity, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, or they say things like, well, racism's an issue of the heart. I'm like, man, so is poverty, so is inequality, <laughs> whatever. Right, right. So, but I get that, right? I mean, technically, I mean, everything is a, is a, you know, is, is, a, is a issue of sin, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, from our theology, that doesn't mean you don't deal with it. Of course. What, what, what kind of statement is that? What kind of work avoid? What are you, you're avoiding trying to deal with? So basically thoughts and prayers, right? Is what you're trying yes. to tell me. And I, I reject that wholeheartedly, you know, or there's this notion of, and you guys have seen this, right? Black folk, African-American folk have dealt with this, this perversion of scripture to preserve, uh, you know, the current infrastructure of an inherently an uh, unfair and unjust system, right? Uh, well, God puts people over you uh, in leadership. So this, yeah, tell that to Moses, man. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that right. sounds really good until, uh-huh. you know, you start scrutinizing that a little bit more. Um, or, you know, um, yeah, just, what you know, you know all, all the tricks, man, like all the tricks. F- folks of faith, uh, particularly from a Western tradition, right? You know, folks who are indigenous, there's not as much of the tear or the separation rather between sacred and secular, right? Mm-hmm. So this whole binary of biblical and worldly really doesn't exist in, you know, African, Latin American, indigenous cultures as much, right? It's all kind of uh, baked into one, but that's 100% what you get from solid sort of the very Protestant, uh, you know, um, ethos around how, where religion lives and how it influences our world. 
I, I don't come from that tradition, right? It's all, it's all part of the same thing. Coincidentally takes away all responsibility from us to do anything. Which, man, has worked inherently well in producing the system that, that we have today. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I think, bro, like that right there makes me mad, you know, because you know, I, I don't want to offend your listeners. But like, you know, dude, I would much rather, like the folks who make me the most upset, I feel like King here a little bit, right? Say it. I, you know, are, are the believers who get out front and with religious fervor, with a fundamentally corrupt doctrinal argument, mm-hmm. we'll justify this stuff. But at the same time, it's not at all new, right? Yep. Christianity has been used as an excuse to take over territories, to dispossess people, to commit acts of genocide, to burn folks at the stake, to enslave human beings. But it always usually comes with the religious <laughs> motivation behind it and a justification because people got to sleep at night. Right. It's just not, hey, I've got a good idea. It's, you know, <laughs> this came from a higher power. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But that's dangerous, right? Oh, my, yes. So, I mean, obviously, you're not, uh, you're not just in this faith because it was given to you and you've obviously like you said from your dad you've you've uh you've looked at it with a critical eye probably i mean even conversations that you and i've had have explored whether or not this still holds true as an adult and all this kind of stuff and uh obviously nobody can see it but you're wearing a a shirt that says good always wins right now and so like dr king's whole thing is that the moral arc of the universe is you know bends towards justice is long and bends towards justice Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, mm. obviously. What keeps you still saying? Because there are people that are bastardizing faith in a really profoundly dark way. What keeps you in, in it, I guess? Let God be true and every man a lie. Mm. Mm. For me, that particular that particular verse has carried me through my questioning. There's at least been two or three times I almost left the faith, man. Mm. There's been times I didn't want to call myself a Christian, quote unquote, because I just didn't like the baggage that it carried. Um, I didn't like the association, even though I always felt like the faith was pure. You know, I felt like the institution was corrupt and to a large extent, I still feel that way. Um, Then being a person of, African descent. There were times where I couldn't find myself. I couldn't locate myself in the faith. Now, here I am. I'm developing this very, you know, um, very Afrocentric and very uh, Pan-African, yet humanist, right? I believe in all humanity. Um, orientation about myself and the pride and my ancestry. And, and all I can find is a Christianity that um, that dogs and strips people of identity, particularly people of color, while propping up, while, while that uses faith as a thin veneer for in, 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 in importing or exporting, rather, uh, really, which are, you know, European constructs mm-hmm. and identity, right? So it, that's normal and everything else is sort of abnormal. And you shouldn't talk about that. And so I felt like, man, are there any Christians out here who are speaking to my situation, right? And, um, then, you, you know, out of nowhere, people like James Coney get delivered to me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And or I, but I'm asking God, is the faith fundamentally corrupt? And then I'm understanding that, well, you know, pre-Constantine, it really wasn't, man. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and so what ends up happening is like 
what I realize is that if, if humanity is falling, then that's on humanity. Mm. That ain't on God. And so how do I find ways to burn away the impurities and really deduce, deduce what is the purest extract of the faith and chase for my whole life uh, what that is? And throughout what I've been able to find is that, yeah, man, like, it really is there. It takes a whole lot of work. I'm not going to deny it. That's why when people dismiss Christianity. Like, I'm like, I, mean, I, I, I get I, it. I get it, man. If I was you, I'd do the same thing. I'm, sure. over, I'm looking like I'm y'all the way I'm arguing against, the, you know, sometimes Christianity. But what I won't argue is that, man, I ain't telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what I know. Um, that God is real, right? That I, you know, that I believe Jesus. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that, I, that I believe uh stories man that i believe in and and adhere to the principles of, of those parables and that they have uh borne fruit man that they have guided in my life man that they have um that they've been evidenced in the things that people see that they think are me they're not me man mm-hmm. right so so like that's what carries me forward is that in the end when you remove all that clutter and all that nonsense all the lies and all the deception that that god be true and every man is a lie god is still God is still the realist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, I can live with that. Hmm. Yeah. If, if the impurities are burned away and what you're left with are, are things like grace and mercy and the dignity of all people and love mm-hmm. and all of these things, then that's a little bit easier to, to, um, to get on board with. That's, that's way more digestible and um, conducive to the growth of humanity, everybody, believer, non-believer, whatever the case may be like that, that sounds like what a, a, a more perfect world looks like to me. I, I mean, not to do the overly spiritual thing, but I was reading first John this morning and uh, says any, any man who loves is in God, <laughs> you know, that there are things that, that transcend all of the yeah. trappings that we put with it. And it's like, if there's a framework within there, that's love and tenderness and justice and mm-hmm. all these different things that, you can extrapolate from it and that are the heart really of the text or the, you know, the faith that we've been given. It's, uh, it's worth pursuing, I think. Yeah. That's what keeps me going, man. You know, I believe on that stuff, man. And it's, 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 it's turned out all right for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, um, so I know that I, I don't even know all the details of it, but I know that you were appointed recently by the governor. Is that right too? Yeah. So, so what's your current work right now? Because you're not with a think tank anymore, are no, you? No, no, no. So I launched out on, in October of 2017 to form my own independent education consultancy where I had a little more flexibility in being able to say what I wanted to, that's one thing, but mm-hmm. also to be able to exact a measure of influence over what schools and, and teachers were actually doing. Policy is really distant, man. So after two years of that, I was like, man, I got to get closer to the ground. Yeah. Um, so being able to get hired in to to bring to produce and, and offer professional development, professional learning for teachers to be able to offer a strategic planning and talk with school leaders, et cetera. Like that's more my bag. I still do I still do the research and the policy analysis stuff and I still write. Um but I needed that. So um And you're doing PhD work too, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Working on my PhD in urban education here at UNC Charlotte. And four kids. And four kids and a wife. Come on man. Come on now you gotta <laughs> look you gotta make sure you mention that too. Uh but I mean, come on, man. So listen, folks, look at it. Like, How you do it, bro? So I'm telling you, man, God is real, man. You, you clearly see that that ain't me. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's too much. Yeah, come on now. Um, and sometimes I'm still still out of balance. But uh, Governor Cooper, um, I guess 
you know, when some opportunities became available to make appointments for expiring terms, um, saw fit to appoint me, man. And I was honored by the request uh, because I guess that meant that, I mean, three years removed from being teacher of the year, he still saw me as a respected figure in the state, which is that's And a what's the appointment? What's the position? Oh, so I'm, I'm, I'm on the state board of education. Okay. I, I serve district uh, six, which is um, basically Charlotte and all your belying um, counties as far out as Anson, Lincolnton, um, you know, Union, Gaston, you know, so all your sort of Metro Charlotte and not so Metro yeah. <laughs> <laughs> counties, um, they're under my auspice and I represent them on the state board of education. So I'm a voting member, um, help make policy that gets sent down to the local e- education agencies. So, so cool, man. Yeah, it is, man. It's a lot of responsibility, but I, you know, I'm grateful for my colleagues that are on that board, but just the opportunity to bring equity to that, to that space as well. So it's, uh, six meetings, five, six meetings in now we meet every month. Um, yeah, again, it's clear that, um, I'm there for a purpose and I'm grateful for the governor, um, seeing fit to put me there. What is, uh, and, and I know this is a stupid question, but because who knows what's going to happen, but do you have a path that you want to go down? Do you have a, like in 10 years, I'd like to be doing this in five, you know, because wow. I want you to be president. <laughs> I vote for you right now. <laughs> He's like, if I could just exact a little bit of influence here. That's, that's 10, that's 15 years from now. But what, what, what do you, I mean, what do you think is next? Oh man. First getting done with this PhD, man. I know that. Yep. Um, you know, I, I would, I'm, I'm trying to start my own organization, trying to start my own um, think tank in air quotes, because I don't just want to stop at thinking I want to, I want to do as well. I really want to start an organization that's dedicated to responding to uh, the racial inequities in education with the North Carolina focus, right? So that applies the necessary, that does the research that continues to shine a light on where these uh, fault lines are, but also applies the pressure uh, that forces our, our, our education system to respond. So that's something I'd like to do is run my own sort of think tank. Um, beyond that, Joseph, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I don't, I'm not in the business of telling God what to do, man. That's what I tell everybody. I do whatever he tells me to do, but I ain't trying to. But he knows the desire of my heart, man. So, I mean, I can see myself running for some sort of office. Uh, can't tell you what necessarily. Um, certainly it would be you want to start local. Yeah. You know, but by local, I mean, you know, either in the city or potentially even at the in the state house. Um I could I could see playing a, playing a role there. Um uh, but I don't know man. Sometimes I wonder if I'd be cut out for that life cuz I'm just, you know, I fancy myself as kind of a truth teller. Of course. And that's not necessarily um doesn't always work. No, it doesn't in that space where you're dependent on uh people's votes, right? And then you say things that aren't are popular or politic. Yeah. Um it could cost you a seat, but you know, I feel like we're all on borrowed time. And if I were fortunate enough to get in a position that I would do what people put me there to do, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is be honest, you know. Mm. Yeah, I can see that a hundred percent. I'm excited. <laughs> Whatever I'm it is, do come on now. <laughs> hey, I'm cheering for you. I, I'll chair your campaign or something, <laughs> or get, just be a like a sandwich f- sign flipper. Whatever. Listen, <laughs> get your gray suit ready for when the teacher of the years <laughs> show up. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, as we start to kind of close, give us a give us a recommendation of something that we should read. You mentioned James Cone. I'm guessing you mm. mean Crossing the Lynching Tree. Give us something that's 
meaning something to you right now or has meant something to you to read or to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I keep going back to, uh, I keep going back to Howard Thurman. I would say King, but then King was influenced by Howard Thurman. Right. You know, so um, Jesus and the disinherited. Yes. Is like um, pre-civil rights era theology about how God is on the side of the oppressed. Right. Um, and it really gave me a framework for the the kind of the kind of Christian, the kind of man of man of faith that I want to be. Um, and he talks about this notion of the religion of Jesus, right? That, so I, Christ did not come to start a religion, right? Right. We often forget that. But what was the religion of Jesus, right? How did he interpret and how did he understand what was, um, you know, the Judaism of of his time and in of in, in of his era in in the heart of empire mm-hmm. um, where you have an increasingly powerful um, sort of governmental structure that weighs and bears burdens on on people who are the least of these what is our function in that environment beyond just our personal faith um, but what are we to do how are we to operate how are we to look at not only those that that the seat of power but those who are crushed under its under its weight and um man uh you know some things just transcend religious cat that's why howard Thurman's like a mystic right because there's like mm-hmm. there's like there's like christian is like all right man you just tap into some you know the source there's the, the source bro that's right you didn't hit you hit the vein bro that's you know exactly right <laughs> and so but he long before some of these notions became popular long before there was a cone you know or before king became beloved there was thurman you know casting a similar vision man speaking with just um you know the, the, uh, almost like a, a muse, right? A spiritual muse about how we are to interact with the world. And um, I've returned, it's a small book, short read. I've read it several times, mm. man. My book, my copy's all torn up, but I return to it, man. It speaks to me. Um, it lets me know that I'm not tripping when, I, when, I'm, when I'm so incensed by what I'm seeing politically, socially, um, and then I'm looking at it as, you know, spiritual. Mm-hmm. Howard Thurman's like, nah, man, like, you're right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, nah, like Jesus had a relationship with the disinherited, bro. Like, we're supposed to feel a way about these things. And people, you know, constantly, get, don't be so angry. Don't come at this, you know, it's like, no, I, I'm supposed to follow my anger because yeah. I'm, I'm supposed to, I'm called to be angry about the right things. That's right. But sin not, you know, but but anger is a righteous emotion, of you know, course. can be mm-hmm. um, when utilized correctly. And so you want me to not be human. Right. You know, when, man, shoot, I mean, I, sometimes I read the Gospels, I'd be like, dang, Jesus was a little terse right there, man. Right. He was a little he was hey. a little short with his disciples on that. Relax, man. <laughs> Relax, Jesus, calm down. <laughs> Why are you getting all upset? Yeah. Are you so dumb? He, how many times did he tell his disciples that? So, um, yeah, we'll maybe shoot you a couple kind of not uh, speed round questions at all. Mm. So, t- I mean, take your as much time as you want with them, but, you know, little maybe some of these will be a little bit lighter, but like, so I, you probably have about two minutes in your day that isn't being spent with, you know, kids, wife, all the, that mm-hmm. list that you just gave. But, but, uh, what's, what's something that you surprised us with something? What's something that you like to do, um, 
that that maybe you know your your fans or whoever wouldn't necessarily know. I like to listen to records. Yeah, I, I, I've been a wax collector for most of my life. Um, kind of outgrowth of being a hip hop guy and a producer and a sampler. So I listen to records, man. Love wax. I see, it's coming back now, but I'm old school. I've been doing this for years. Yeah, I love it. Um, this might be a hard question to answer, but so like. Um, it, when you come to the, not the end of your life, but like as you're reflecting back on, on what you've done, if, if you were described um, as a combination of two people, like, uh, for example, you know, LeBron James's skill set, I mean, he maybe would be described as, you know, he's a Magic Johnson and maybe Charles Barkley or, you know, or something as a way to describe. Uh, what would you be proud of as far as, as, the two people that they, someone would say, James Ford, he was, he was kind of like a combination of. That's a great question. Oh man. Ooh, this is the lightning rod question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, I would say, um, he had the ability to communicate with diverse audiences like an Oprah. Mm. Right, with the eloquence and conviction of a king. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah, heck yeah. And he had Oprah's money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. He knows it is eyes of my heart. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's a great answer. Uh, what um, do you have a routine like? Do you have a morning routine uh, that that sets you in motion for the day? During the Lenten season, I've just been trying to get up and just clear my mind and just submit my day, you know, and just be like, all right. Um, aside from even a devotion, it's saying like, all right, let me just lower myself, whatever you have for me to do today. I'm, I'm, I want to make sure that I do it. Um, so I'd say like the first 10 minutes after I roll out of bed before I even get dressed or, you know, brush my teeth or whatever. Um, early. Say again? Your kids get up early? Yeah, my kids get up early. Um, and the reason why I only probably get 10 to 15 minutes to do that, dude, is because I take I take the, the kids to daycare in the morning, right? Um, I get three out of the four kids ready. Um, so I get them up, get them clothed, um, make sure my daughter catches her bus and then take the other two to daycare. Uh, but for me, it really is about being alone with self and being able to hear God. I feel like, man, God ain't going to raise his voice to me at this stage of my growth. He's like, nah, you're going to have to lower the noise. Wow. You know, yeah. Like I'm not gonna raise my voice at you. You gotta turn down everything else. Uh, what's a talent that you don't have that you wish that you had that you admire when you see it being performed in other people? Probably, you probably hear this all the time. But man, I really wish I could sing. Yeah. <laughs> like I can carry a tune. Not sing. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I can carry a tune in a bucket, man, with a handle on it. But I, I can't <laughs> sing. Like the way that I want to sound in my mind is just not even close. So that I wish I could do that. So the, the very last thing that we always ask, because we usually get a little bit heavy, is what is, and I'll preface this by saying it does not have to be a good retelling of the story, but what is, can you think of a time that you laugh the hardest, like your hardest laugh? Oh, God. <laughs> it, can be a, it can be your kids, and it doesn't have to be the hardest, but like last time you laughed until you cried. You probably had a couple of those church moments when, uh, you know, you weren't supposed to laugh. Right, or non-church moments or, where I was supposed to be laughing at you. <laughs> 
Oh man, dude, I laugh so often. Uh huh. Um, I laugh so often. It probably was just something a student did, man. <laughs> it, it really was. I don't remember what it was particularly, but I guarantee it was something that took place in the classroom where, you know, I probably keeled over so hard where your, your those, abdomen hurts. You're those like, are I good laughs. breathe, man. Like, making me laugh so hard. <laughs> Maybe a student ripped, ripped one in class. Right, right. I, was, I don't know. It was, but it's, that's hard, man. That's yeah. Hard. That's but, awesome. But that is something, you know, I'm sure I'm far from being alone when I say this, that one of the things that, you know, appreciate about you is, I mean, you, you're doing prophetic hard work, but yet you, you've got a smile on your face an awful lot. And that, uh, that's not a, that's not a normal combination that you see a lot of times. So, and, and that's not, infectious, man. Not contrived. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Appreciate that. yeah. I, um, I appreciate uh, you doing this today and just being friends and, um, really look up to you and everything that you're doing. I, I know it's hard to hear compliments, but I do really think that it is prophetic work. And I think that you are subverting systems and power structures and rip it all down, man. Keep doing it. God's given you a ton of, you know, abilities and a ton of, um, he's just taking your voice to a lot of places. So keep going, man. Please Appreciate keep that. going. Yeah. We're, we're going to rip it down, but we're also going to build something up. Yeah, that's, that's it. Right. In this place. Yeah. 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 Thank you, man. Yeah. Appreciate Thanks a lot, James. I talked your ear off, man. I probably no.